I'd like to welcome everyone who is uh, joining us on this podcast uh, from uh, anywhere in the world, which is one of the beauties of what we do now here at UNESCO. My name is George Papayanis. Uh, I'm the Chief of Media Services here at UNESCO. And in today's podcast, we're going to be looking specifically at uh, how uh, cultural uh, policies are being challenged in many ways due to uh, the relationship between culture and the digital revolution. I'm joined by Danielle Klisch, who is the secretary of the 2005 Convention on the Protection and Promotion of the Diversity of Cultural Expressions. Danielle, good to have you with us. Thank you, Josh. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, Also uh, joining us is Octavio Kuletz, a UNESCO expert. Uh, But uh, Octavio comes to us uh, from quite a, a career in the publishing industry and also someone who is, I think today, we would call a digital publisher. You were founded in 2007 Teseo, which is one of the first ebook companies in Latin America. So uh, you have, are someone who has also made the transition, I guess, from the printed page to the digital environment. And as I mentioned, we have Danielle with us, who basically you're responsible, Danielle, for the implementation of the convention, for uh, essentially ensuring that we are operational, I guess, that we are promoting it, that its initiatives are uh, generating the results that we're looking for. And you are also uh, very much involved in providing financial support through the International Fund for Cultural Diversity, which uh, I would recommend to anybody who's listening, go to the page, our website, for um, the 2005 convention. There are some excellent videos there that uh, show how the International Fund has been um, supporting new talent, young talent, creativity, and a lot of it happening in the digital environment. But the digital environment really poses some very serious challenges to us, and it is a revolution that we've experienced in our homes, but in the cultural sphere, it is essentially altering the cultural and creative industries. We have the emergence of new players, the explosion and expansion of uh, different social networks. I mean, we see people creating things for Instagram. Uh, There's big data, the cloud computing, and of course, what's happening in terms of the marketplace. So there are a number of things for us to talk about. So, Octavio, it's big. The change is huge. Can you kind of give us a frame of, of where we are, because the impact here is on, is on creativity. You know, we have the artist, we have the value chain, which is the artist making money. And then we have governments, intergovernmental organizations like UNESCO, trying to figure out how do we put some, I don't want to call it parameters or boundaries, but how do we shape the discussion so that we have policy that, that is supportive of the creativity and protects those who are involved? keeping in mind the fact that we are also dealing with different accesses to, to the digital environment. Yes, well, thank you, George, uh, for having me. It's truly a kind of big bang, what we are seeing now. It's been like that uh, since, I would say, since the advent of uh, the web. So the web was creative as a place, like an open platform for creation, for any kind of expression. And we are seeing now the rise of new logics of creation, uh, new, new players that are benefiting from these new logics. And it's a completely new landscape if you compare what we are having now um, to what we had 20 years ago. So um, I would say that, to put it 
very briefly, if we, if we take the traditional creative chain from the creator to the consumer, we used to have creation, production, distribution and consumption in the end. Both ends of the creative chain have already uh, migrated. My, for example, my writers, as me as a publisher, I always get manuscripts that are written, of course, in Word files with YouTube videos, with hyperlinks. So the, the creators have already migrated and the users as well because they have digital devices, they are consuming in digital ways. And they're expecting this too. I mean, if I, I'm reading a book at home every night, I turn the page, there's no hyperlink. Of course, my imagination runs wild. But today's user is interested in seeing where do I go from here? If they don't see other elements that enrich the, uh, that environment, um, it seems to be lacking something. You have both trends. People who like uh, reading in the analog way and they don't want to change, they are very happy like that. For example, I see that a lot in France. And I'm enjoying that when I am in yes. France to read in... Uh, I, I, I see it on the subway and... <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love reading traditional books and sometimes I don't need a hyperlink. But, but at the same time, it's true that uh, especially younger generations, they are more used to mobile phones and it's a new, new type of reading. So it's much more horizontal, superficial, but in a neutral sense. And where you can see that uh, more is in China, for example. In emerging economies, you see... The truly digital uh, logics are emerging more in, in Asia, in Africa, in Latin America, more than in Europe or in the, in the global north. So that, that's for publishing, which is my field. But in general, I would, see, I would say that both logics are coexisting. And it's very complicated for the public sector to deal with that because we have to deal with the, the analog chain, the analog world to help them and also with the new digital players. So it's really a big bang of new logics and actors and movements, and it's really, really interesting. Is that where Danielle comes in, talking about how the public sector is involved, talking about guidelines? I think uh, most recently we've had new guidelines adopted uh, by uh, uh, signatories, the people who have signed, the member states that have signed the 2005 convention. Are these guidelines conceived in a way for us to begin to uh, or continue this process of trying to figure out how to best manage what is a moving target? That's right, George. There's 145 countries around the world that have signed or ratified, is the legal term, this uh, international law, the Convention on the Diversity of Cultural Expressions. And a few years ago, all of these countries, including the European Union, is also a party to this convention. They said they wanted to make sure that this law was still relevant in the digital world. They were concerned about that. They were concerned that they would be able to maintain their right to introduce policies and measures that would be able to support creators in this new environment. And that wasn't necessarily something that was a given. So instead of writing a new law, or instead of going down the arduous road of amending the law, which is a very difficult process to do, they decided to work on operational guidelines, which is more or less a, an interpretation, a negotiated interpretation of the law. So about four years ago, we were working with Octavio and with Véronique Gavremont, who's a professor of law at the University of Laval, 
and a UNESCO chair in the Diversity of Cultural Expressions. Uh, explain what the UNESCO chair is, because people might not understand what that means. So a UNESCO chair is usually an academic organization or a department within the university that has been given uh, a certain recognition by UNESCO for the work that it does that is related specifically to, our to, to the mandate of, of UNESCO. And, and in this case, to... And in this case, to the convention itself. Mm -hmm. So instead of doing all of those very difficult things, the parties to the convention said, let's make guidelines. Mm. So as I said, it was a negotiated process. This is not us, the secretariat, or experts working with the secretariat producing these guidelines, although we worked with Octavio and Veronique to produce a draft. And this draft was negotiated live here in Paris uh, during mm -hmm. the Intergovernmental Committee, also with civil society organizations who were present. They also, artists, associations. There's uh, the Worldwide CISAC Organization for Performers. And we work together with them to elaborate guidelines that deal with everything from establishing a human rights-based approach to cultural goods and services in the digital environment, mm -hmm to addressing policies and measures that would create a new legislative framework to make mm -hmm. sure that artists get paid for mm -hmm. their works in this environment, which is not necessarily evident, to ensuring that when trade agreements are negotiated, especially for e-commerce, that there maintains a kind of cultural exception for cultural goods and services that are disseminated digitally. So there were many concerns that the governments had, and because it is an intergovernmental organization and because it is a committee made up of governments from 146 countries, there were many issues. Mm -hmm. uh, other issues that came up were to make sure that schools and public institutions were providing programs not only to ensure that students had technological skills, but also digital literacy competencies. There are others on artistic freedom built into this um, guidelines to address issues of censorship on the net, trolling, which is kind of a harassment of artists to pull down their works, and also new issues today, like you mentioned before, big data algorithms, but also the question of artificial intelligence. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now we're into AI. You know, Octavio, uh, Danielle has already given us more than 30 minutes of conversation just by the uh, the several items that she's mentioned. And and so I, I'm, I'm just curious, you know, guidelines in the digital age, guidelines when you have Amazon uh, which is reshaping the economy across the board. I mean, from what you buy in the supermarket to what you hang on your wall and what you read. I mean, publishing is where Amazon got its start. So how do we how do we get everybody to come to terms on 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 something that is so difficult difficult to put your hands around or to control? Yeah, yeah, that's a very tricky point because it's true that the you know the, the digital economy is an economy of abundance. It's very difficult to apply the same rules as we had before, uh, regulations or controlling, because especially big players will will always find a way to overcome any obstacles you put to them. So in my view, the guidelines have the virtue of saying, okay, it's not a question of controlling, it's a question of fostering, especially local players. 
and local markets and local industries, cultural industries, uh, supporting even, for example, small startups that are working in the field and li like having even more abundance. It's a question of having more uh, local cultural players that work with digital technologies. I, I was really happy to, to read the final version of the guidelines because they, they have this very constructive approach and saying, okay, it's not a question of saying what we have to do, but how we will do, how we will approach these issues. Because digital is already there. We, we don't need to, to implant it. Amazon is there, as you said, but also lots of lots of projects everywhere, not just in, in Europe or in the US, or, but also in Africa. There are lots of projects in Africa working with digital artists, with e-commerce and other um, aspects. So it's, it's a question for, for the public institutions, for the public sector, sector in general, say, of saying digital is already there. We don't need to digitize culture. Digital is there. What we need to do is to bring the principles of diversity, the principles of the convention, there. So And make sure that we have diversity of content, diversity of players, and diversity of audiences. So I think that's a key, and I, I was really, really happy to read the final text and see that uh, this comes from the text. So I'm, I'm very optimistic. But, Danielle, is it possible that we can foster this type of environment when we have these huge platforms that, as a part of the capitalist, shall I say, type of mentality, you know, we get rid of our competition, you know, even if it's small competition, and maybe we'll cherry-pick a few things that we like, and then we move on, and what's left behind is a kind of a shattered cultural um, environment. Is that your concern? Well, this is why the convention's implementation is so important, because it says you need to have a strong, dynamic cultural sector in order to withstand what you're talking about. Right. So there can be the storm coming through, but it doesn't mean the houses have to fall down. Right. So as Octavia said, in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, we are working with local governments, with artists, with entrepreneurs, in order to secure an environment through regulation, through institutional building, in order to make sure that the house doesn't fall down. Mm -hmm. So there are many really important initiatives, just one that Octavio cites in his chapter for our report, Reshaping Culture Policies, is an African digital arts platform, which was started some years ago by a very young and creative and entrepreneurial woman, Chepchumba, who was a technology specialist and found herself in the world of men and wanted to make sure that there would also be space for women's voices and, and also women creators who are experimenting between the boundaries of arts and science to produce new digital artworks and using art to produce new technologies. So she set up a school for young girls to, and women to have a space and a voice for them so that they can create regardless of what happens in terms of the Amazon coming in or not. They will still be there. And we work with governments, and we've been very fortunate to have support from the European Union, from the Swedish Development Agency, the Korean government, and others, in order to be able to work together with governments, with civil society, to make that space visible. Because most of the uh, creative economy in these countries is informal. 
the informal economy. So we're helping them to make it more formal in order for it to be more secure. That's Daniel Cleish. Daniel Cleish is the secretary of the 2005 Convention on the Protection and Promotion of the Diversity of Cultural Expressions. And we're also joined by Octavio Cules, who is the author of the third chapter in uh, UNESCO's 2018 Global Report on Reshaping Cultural Policies. Octavio, also the founder of uh, Teseo, uh, one of the first ebook companies in uh, Latin America. Uh, Octavio, you um, raised the issue, uh, well, actually, I think it was, in fact, uh, Danielle spoke about issues of payment. You also spoke about it as part of the value chain you were describing earlier, which now moves in every direction. How do we ensure that artists are being properly compensated in this environment? I think that um, it's important that we revisit the, the cultural value chain so that we can identify uh, better what's the value added by each link. And I think now what, what is very clear is that the, especially the distribution link is uh, performed by uh, platforms or it could be performed by um, a website. So that shows that a higher percentage of the payment should go to the other links, especially to the artist. So uh, usually, you know that, uh, for example, in the case of publishers, and the publishing house is working in, I would say, in the, in the middle of the chain, like production and distribution. If you translate that in, in digital terms, well, I can publish an author and then do the editing, the layout. Uh, I can distribute that through Amazon. It's not a big work I'm doing as a publisher. So in, in that new um, ecosystem, publishers should pay more to the, the, the writer. It's not the 10% anymore. It should be 30 or 50%. It's like a joint venture be between the creator and the producer now. Because the, link, the links have changed. And uh, there is a, re, a new type of uh, relation between the different links, and especially distribution. It's now performed by a machine. But has the economy around this particular example that you're talking about, which would be publishing, um, has it changed in such a way that that a publisher is thinking, okay, I can give 40 or 50 percent, where it used to be far less? The other, I think, component of this conversation is where even the creators are also distributors. I have a friend of mine uh, paints watercolors and puts that together with haiku poetry. She sells on a, uh, a platform, but she also sells from her website. So there's, there are these opportunities. Um, and just to get back to the original, the original question, uh, what has changed in the economy that allows someone to think, all right, sure, I'll give away more because I'm still going to earn, or am I still earning what I would have gotten if it was just a 10% cut? It's part of the same process because actually if, if a writer receives the contract by a publisher and it's a completely uh, old-fashioned contract with 10%, they will say that the writers, I will publish directly with Amazon. So they, they can get 50 or 70% in some cases. That will force publishers, that will force us publishers to rewrite our contracts and our commercial conditions with writers. And this is happening. So we, we're seeing that. And in that uh, respect, well, yes, yeah, it's, it's a positive change. So the market is very dynamic and all the voids are filled, in this case, by Amazon. And you know, the, the question of self-publishing, in general, what we are witnessing is that some middlemen, like publishers, are being replaced by other middlemen. 
So new middlemen, like platforms. And they're going to be new and new and new in the future. So the market is really, really interesting and, and it's going very fast. It's not very easy to see the, the, the end of the story. But I'm sure uh, it's, it's happening right now. The percentages will, will shift. 10% will no longer happen anymore. It, it's going to change. It will, will be much higher for the benefit of the writers. And in music and film, it's going to be the same. How is it evolving then, I mean, from the perspective of what UNESCO is doing and the work that you're trying to promote, the guidelines, how is it affecting, for example, in this area of payment? Well, George, this is one of the main concerns of the parties to the convention right now and the main cultural policy challenge that they're facing today. Last year, we organized a conference with the CISAC on the transfer of value. And there is a very powerful testimony by a well-known composer. And he said that he can put up one of his compositions on YouTube, a distributor, hoping to reach a large audience and to receive payment. But he told the story that his composition online would get, let's say, 3,000 hits. Mm -hmm. Google earns 3 million uh, pounds, I think it was, he said, from these 3,000 hits, and he earned 300 pounds. So he said that he would earn uh, more money playing music on the street than he would necessarily from uploading his, his music and his compositions onto YouTube. So part of the role of UNESCO, the director general said a few weeks ago that UNESCO as an intellectual forum is there to help bring important ideas to the fore including through its standard-setting instruments, which most people might think international law is pretty boring. But it raises up important questions like how to remunerate artists and creators in the digital environment, a big concern of the parties. And now, when we have artificial intelligence as uh, an important phenomena, even beyond digitization. I was in Korea and I was speaking with the Arts Council of Korea and talking about the digital guidelines, the digital world, and for them this is already passé. They're investing in, in artificial intelligence, the Arts Council of Korea. And we saw last summer the first album that was released by artificial intelligence. So there are a lot of developments that are going very quickly that are going to influence even more this question of remuneration for artists. And we need to really use this enormous and amazing platform we have through the convention to think about new business models, because it's not just about tweaking the existing models. It's thinking really outside the box and and thinking in a completely radically different way on how this digital creative economy is going to work for everybody. Kind of takes your breath away when you when you talk about uh, an album produced through artificial intelligence. I last year we we, we we listened to a song, for example, Daddy's Car. Mm -hmm. It's a nice song played. Uh, I think they 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 fed the machine with um, songs by the Beatles. Oh, really? And they created the machine created a new song. That is car. Uh -huh, it's kind nice, of like a, nice. a variation on maybe you can drive my car. <laughs> yes, maybe. I want to be a star. <laughs> yeah. There was something you told, uh, you told us uh, a few minutes ago, Octavia, that actually kind of scared me. Because I, and, and, and only because I, I see the importance, I think we all see the importance of the diversity of the marketplace and that uh, the dominance of one player 
tends to reduce creativity and access to the marketplace. And you were saying how when the larger platforms are willing to pay more then smaller distributors, like yourself potentially, uh, have to adapt to that reality. Um, but your digital publishing house, I imagine, is a digital publishing house. It's not also selling toothpaste. So you're earning your living um, and you're supporting your artists. You're potentially in a niche market. Can you afford to do it, really? Well, I've been in the market for the last 10 years and it's... <laughs> and it's been, so and you've had to worse. adapt. Yeah, it's very, it's a lot of work, but the, on, you have to always be sure that, you know, you, you have to understand how the big players work. It's a big data game. So my bet was not to rely on, on those big platforms for my own distribution. So I am building my own community of followers and even Facebook for me or Twitter. It's, they, they are just external platforms and I want to be in touch with my own readers and my authors and put them in touch together. So the key here is to control your own data. That's the key. So that's why I don't distribute with, with big players my, my ebooks. And, and it's working. You can find lots of niches. And as a local player, we have that advantage. We are local. We know the jungle, the Latin American uh, jungle. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, our, that works in our benefit. Um, and I can give lots of uh, lessons about that. And we had lots of failures. And we learned a lot, but I think we found a couple of interesting models that can be followed by many, many startups. And the key is not to uh, be overwhelmed by, by the, the power of those global platforms, which also started like uh, by being small, but then they happen to, to grow globally. So it's essential that to, to, to stay in touch with your public and to control your data and your technology. Uh, Danielle, I want to bring forward something we're coming to uh, almost the end of our uh, of our time, but uh, you were speaking about uh, women, and I, I, I'm curious about the challenges uh, that women face in the digital environment. Are they different in any way? Are women uh, more excluded from the digital environment? Um, what are the challenges that women face? Are they different? Are there more hurdles? More hurdles? I don't know, but different types of hurdles. The studies that we've done so far in the context of the convention show that while there are at least 50% women occupying various cultural occupations, the more technologically oriented fields, you find more men, which is quite a strange thing because if you look back to the history of film, you used to see a lot of women as film editors. And when the new um, editing machines came in, all of a sudden the women were out and the occupation of film editor became dominated more by, by mm -hmm. men. And so what we're trying to do is to see right now what is the state of play and where it is that we can help women overcome the new barriers that they face in this digital creative economy. And I'm very happy that you asked me that question because just today, just this afternoon, we launched in the context of the International Fund for Cultural Diversity that you mentioned at the start of this podcast, a uh, the ninth call for funding, mm -hmm. but including a new special call for young women entrepreneurs in developing countries working in the digital creative industries. 
And this new initiative is a joint initiative between UNESCO and a young cultural entrepreneur. Her name is Sabrina Ho. She's 26. And he's decided to invest uh, some of her fortune in, in trying to help young women in developing countries enter and operate in the digital creative industries. So we're very excited. Sabrina Ho? Yeah, Sabrina well, Ho. thank you, Sabrina. That's for sure. <laughs> okay. So we're, we're very excited about this uh, due development, and we'll see what it brings. But at the end of this year, uh, we'll bring together a group of women who will, in fact, receive the funding from this new Sabrina Ho UNESCO initiative. And we'll have another discussion, so perhaps we can carry on the conversation Oh, then. there's another opportunity for a podcast. <laughs> Octavio, yeah. I'm going to, uh, just as a function of time, give you the last question. What's going to be the, the next big disruptor in this, uh, in this culture sector uh, in the digital world? I think, uh, undeniably, it's going to be artificial intelligence, which has just started in the creative field. So we will see machines... Uh, creating uh, films and songs and texts with really, really high quality. And so it's, I think that's where also the public sector should um, pay attention to. One very tricky issue is that who will own the copyright of those creations? You know, because the, the data came from the users, the data that feeds the machines, they, they, it comes from the users, but the result, the output is copyright Google, Facebook or Amazon. So who who will have the copyright of those creations, which will be the, the best works of art of the future. So there is a big, big issue there. And, and it's something that I analyze in my chapter, at the end of the chapter. So. I noticed, that, in fact, it was a question that I hoped that we might get to in terms of updating copyright. And of course, copyright has a special place in the heart of, a, of UNESCO. Um, so uh, perhaps for another day. Um, when, when, when a moment of conversation goes by, like uh, almost a gust of wind, and yet you feel so refreshed at the end of it, you know that you've had a remarkable experience. And I, I can't thank uh, both of you enough for sharing your ideas and your thoughts in such a um, uh, accessible way so that we could have a, um, a conversation that I think um, has at least uh, given people a good idea or an initial idea, shall we say, about what we do here at UNESCO, what is the importance of the challenges that we face and how we try to adapt them and have wonderful people like uh, Octavio, who was uh, editor and contributor, I should say, to uh, the third chapter for Reshaping Cultural Policies which uh, for 2018, and Danielle Klisch, who is the uh, Secretary of the uh, 2005 Convention on the Protection and the Promotion of the Diversity of Cultural Expressions. Thank you both so much for sharing your ideas, your thoughts, and your analysis of the situation. And so with that, I conclude this conversation. Uh, I'm George Papianis, the uh, Chief of Media Services uh, here at UNESCO in Paris near the Place de Fontenoy. So I wish everyone who has been with us a, a great day. Thank you. Mm-hmm.